grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. You guys, thank you very much. You guys may be seated. We really are. We're trying to reject this notion that you just came to a service, okay? Like this is a movie theater or uh, we're family. And even just seeing uh, the Griffunes up here today, and a lot of you don't know this, that this child, there were times where they just didn't even know if it was going to make it. And the complications were supposed to be just so great. And just to see the miracle that God did, but to see this family... Uh, blessing that family, that is what God intended when he gifted the world with church. So, okay, we're stepping into Ephesians, and we got a little bit to cover today, so we're going to dive into this. Uh, If you have a blue Bible like mine, and this is found on page 827, and of course we're uh, hoping that if you were here last week that You've been studying this text this week, uh, so you probably know more about this text than I know. Uh, But let's start with verse 1. Paul to the saints of Ephesus. And I want us right now to just know that what we're reading is not from a chapter in a systematic theology textbook. In fact, you're not even reading a book. This is a letter. And I think this is important that we know this because I think so often we just open our Bible and we approach the Bible like it's a textbook and we dissect it trying to figure, figure it out, forgetting what we're reading is a letter. And it's written out of a relationship. This intense relationship that exists between Paul and the Ephesian Christians. In fact, what we're going to see is that half of this letter is prayer. It's prayer reports, it's prayer requests, it's Paul's prayers for the Ephesian Christians. 
And so I want us to see at the outset that this is not written to just inform, but it's written for the purpose of encouraging believers, building into believers, pouring into them so that they can be full and mature in Christ. In fact, this whole book is a letter from God to us. Okay, it's, 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 from, it's from our lover. It's a love letter. And uh, I think we, we, I just want to put that out there as we step into this. Now, Paul begins to the saints at Ephesus. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, you're like, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm no saint. Um, saint is not what you think it is. Saint does not mean super spiritual. Saint simply means to be set apart by God. So really, this should read, to the Christians at Ephesus. Now, I think a little bit of of background would probably be helpful uh, before we step into this. What do we know right now about Ephesus? This is a real town with real people in it. What do we know about it? Well, do you know this, that much of the New Testament is centered on Ephesus? Because who's going to become pastor of church of Ephesus? Timothy. So, First and Second Timothy are also not just written to Timothy, but to this church. Um, later, what disciple will pastor here? Let's take a guess. John. Um, tradition also has it that Mary, the mother of Jesus, will end her life here as well. It's also one of the seven churches of, uh, that, that John addresses in, in Revelation. So a question we ought to ask is, okay, why is there so much activity going on here? Here's why, in my mind. Ephesus, at this time, is second in importance only to Rome. This is a major city. So if... If Rome is the Washington, D.C. of that day, Ephesus is the New York City. In fact, let me just show you a few pictures of what's still standing from Ephesus. I think we got a couple of these on PowerPoint. Someone might want to turn. This is uh, their main street, Cardo. And in the day, just massive buildings, temples, uh, things to do just were lining these streets. Next one, we'll go through these kind of quickly. There's its theater, held thousands of people. Of course, what happened in that theater? Yeah, we just went through this in Acts. I mean, Paul, he wants to get in that theater and uh, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ when they want to kill him. All right, uh, next picture. Next picture. This right here is uh, one of the libraries, or at least what's standing of that library. This library is second only to the great library in Alexandria at that time. Next picture. This right here to your right, you see streets going that way and that way. That is an agora, a massive shopping mall of that day. Next picture. This is a reconstruction of what? Temple of Artemis. Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was the Vatican to the worship of this god. 
Okay, that just gives you just a little bit of flavor of, of Ephesus. But what I want us to see this morning is that the early church didn't set up shop in the country or in the suburbs, but it went to the cities. Because cities are the catalyst of culture, of ideas, of worldviews. And it's if we can win the city for Christ, we'll win the whole world. Now, of course, we know Paul's the first to go to this city, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's here where Paul, I think, has a major ministry paradigm switch. Because up until this point, he's been kind of been the world's Billy Graham. I mean, he's going from city to city, preaching his guts out. He is making converts. He takes those converts, puts them in a house church, and then he goes off to the next city. But here in Ephesus, I think Jesus or Paul kind of steps away from that and steps into the way Jesus did ministry, which is he stays in Ephesus for three years, and he pours himself into 12 disciples. In fact, uh, listen to what it says in Acts 19. And hopefully this is fresh because uh, we were just recently in this book. But Acts 19, verse 7 says, There were about 12 men in all. These are Paul's disciples. And Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Ooh, whose message was that? But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them, and he took his, his disciples with him. And they had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. In fact, archaeologists have recently found an entrance or, 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 or an inscription on an entrance to a building that says the lecture hall of. There's no more, but, and I'm not saying that this is actually the hall, but it, it very well could be. And this hall is right in the heart of the city. In fact, it's right near that library. And right across the street from this hall is the largest brothel in the world. Now, whether this is the hall or not, this certainly fits Paul, and it fits the early church, because they went to the hardest places. They set up shop in the teeth of the Roman Empire, and they proclaim the gospel. And think about this. The gospel has such an effect that you read in Acts 19. They almost put that temple out of business. Are we today? Where are we setting up shop? Where are we? Are we going to the hardest places in boldly declaring the gospel of Christ? And are temples and worldviews crumbling and going out of business as a result of that? See, I think Artemis almost going out of business is directly tied to Paul moving from making converts to making disciples. Because converts don't change the world. Disciples do. That's why I don't care if there's 12 of you here next week. 
Because that's what we're going for. Okay, get off your hobby horse, Rod. <laughs> um, verses 3 to 14 now of, of Ephesians. In the original language, in fact, there are 202 words from verses 3 to 14. This forms one sentence for Paul. I don't know how he does that. All I know is I could preach 20 sermons out of this one sentence. So I want to keep us this morning, though, from getting too bogged down. Every sentence has a main point, right? And how do you find the main point? Well, it's simple. You look for the subject and you look for the predicate. And then everything else in the sentence either modifies or clarifies or puts flesh on the subject and the predicate. So what's the subject in these verses? It's God. And it's everything that God does. God blesses, God chooses, God adopts, God redeems, God reveals. But listen, all of this is still not the main point. These things only modify the main point. The main point is what God is ultimately doing. And that's found in verses 9 through 11, but primarily the last part of chapter 10, it's to bring all things together in Christ. Everything that God is doing in this text, everything God has ever been doing throughout all time and space is this right here. It's to bring everything together under one head, Christ. In other words, God has a purpose. And you can see that in verse 9 where it says he purposed in Christ. You see that in verse 11 where it says he who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God has a purpose. God has a plan. You see that in verse 10. Or I'm sorry, verse 11 where it says according to God's plan. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And everything, everything is a part of God's plan. And Jesus is the point of the plan. That's what this text is about. That's what the whole Bible is about. Do you know that today? That God has a plan. An unshakable plan that was established before the creation of the world, as this text says, and that he is perfectly executing that plan. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for every inch of his universe. You ask, well, what is that plan? It's all right here. Look at verse 3. First, his plan is to bless. Bless be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Now, I've said this before, but our our usage of this word to bless really has little punch to it. 
It's weak. We just say things like someone sneezes. We say, bless you. In Greek, does anybody know what this word is? It's eulogy. That's the word that's used three times in verse 3. Eulogy simply means good words or to speak well of. It's what we do at funerals. After a person's life, we eulogize them. We speak well of, of them. But now think back to Genesis and how this word blessing is used there. Because see, there we see the great patriarchs. They gather their sons around them and they eulogize them. They, they, they bless them. And see, eulogy, whether you know this or not, is something every one of us needs right now. Our hearts long for it. It's it's for the most important person of the clan, the patriarch, our fathers, who know us, to look at us. And to say there's no one like you. Bless us. Speak well of us. And why is this? Simple. You and I have been made for our father. Well, that's quite a thing to say on Mother's Day. But I'm not talking about our earthly fathers. I'm talking about our heavenly father. We've we've been made to know him. We've been made to hear him bless us. Our hearts just crave our father's blessing. We need his eulogy for the one who who knows everything about us. Not a hair falls from our head without him knowing. He, He knows our deepest secrets. He knows everything that we've done for him to look at us and say, There's no one like you. See, God inaugurates this blessing with who? Abraham. And God blesses Abraham the way a father is to bless his son. And God promises to Abraham that through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And so now we come to verse 3, and we should feel the excitement of this, because this now is the fulfillment of God's promise all the way back to Abraham. Now let's just add the, the Hebrew flavor of this word, the word Baruch. What does Baruch mean? Well, Baruch is, is the Hebrew word for bless, and it simply means to bend the knee. It means to make yourself small to make someone else big. That's God's good word. That's his eulogy. That the God of the universe would make himself small to exalt us. Do you know his eulogy? Does that word he speaks, is it, is it, is it spoken over you? Is it, is it spoken into your heart? Because this is a life changer. To know my father's blessing. To hear this word that he sings over me. Rod, there's no one. There's absolutely no one like you. That changes me. Second, God's plan is to adopt. Look at verse 5. Can someone stand and just read that? Probably too many people in here. I'll do it. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. 
Now, I think to the Ephesians, when they heard this, this might have moved them to tears. Especially when you throw in Ephesians 4, verse 14, where it says, like babies, no longer like babies, tossed to and fro. Because in that day, the Greeks and the Romans had a common practice of just leaving their unwanted babies at the city dump. In fact, our archaeologists have identified this city dump outside the city gates. What I love, then, is to read the church history books and and, and to read how the early Christians would go into these garbage dumps, and they'd hang around there, and they'd listen for the cries, and they'd find these babies, and they'd adopt them, they'd take them into their home as sons and daughters. And I know I've told this story before, but many years ago when I was a high school pastor, I led a mission trip to Romania, and we were working in an orphanage, and we came to our last day, and this kid was in his late teens. He'd been an orphan there almost his whole life, and he pulled me aside to tell me, no one's ever going to pick me. It was almost like he was saying, will you? See, the Bible teaches that we're all orphans, that we're estranged from our father, that we've lost home. We, we, we learned about this in Ezekiel 16, that, that we were just left in a field to die. But God, he went to the garbage dump and he heard our cries. And I'm going to tell you something. There isn't one person in this room who picked God. He picked you. He picked you. He chose you to be a part of his family as a son. I've been uh, following Jeremiah and Missy, and I don't know if you guys get their blogs or their emails. Of course, they're in Zambia right now. But the, the, the thing that God has just put on their heart, the thing that they're pursuing with all their might is to adopt a child. And they've had to go through hurdle after hurdle, disappointment after disappointment. But if you've read just recently, they, God gifted them with a child. And they've been such a picture to me of, 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 of the father heart of God. In fact, look at these pictures that Jeremiah sent out this week. Here's the little guy that... They've just been, with all their might, just trying to get to this guy. And they finally got him. Look at him. Stop. That's God. A picture of God. How he looks at you. How he adores you. You and I have not been made for the world as it is. That is what we have been made for. His embrace, his arms, his face, to know the Father, to hear his blessing. So God's plan is not only to bless, but it's also to adopt. It's to bring us home where we're God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God. Uh, Verse 7. Look at verse 7. 
In him, we have redemption. God's plan is to redeem. Now, we use this word a lot. This word is all over the Bible, but I don't know if we always understand what it actually means. In fact, the word here is is actually closer to the word ransom. Redeem or to ransom is to buy that thing back. It most literally means to unchain something. Because this word is tied to what was so prevalent in that world, slavery in the slave market. In fact, Ephesus happened to have the world's largest slave market at this time. And see, the only way a slave could ever go free is if someone ransomed them or redeemed them. And because this ransom price was so high usually, they really had no hope of freedom. But if someone would come along, pay that ransom price, they'd be unchained. They'd be set free. See, now most of us this morning are absolutely clueless about this reality of being a slave because we're Americans and we we pride ourselves on our freedom. But I'm going to tell you what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we're all slaves, every single one of us, that no one is free. You might think you're free, but you're a slave. You're either a slave to someone, you're a slave to something. Right now, you are offering your life, your heart, the totality of your being to someone or something. And whatever that thing is, that thing controls you, it masters you. You're a slave. So I don't think we need to look, though, at the culture of Ephesus to give us our definition of redemption, all we need to do is go to Exodus. In Exodus 6, I mean, here, God uh, goes to the slave market in Egypt, and he sees a whole people who are enslaved, and this is what he says. He, He says, therefore, say to the Israelites, Moses, I am the Lord. I'll bring you from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I love that. Because who paid the price? Who paid the ransom price so this whole people could go free? Who? A lamb. And it's blood for each family. And that lamb, throat slit, blood on the doorpost, set them free, unchained them. And this is God's plan from the beginning. God's plan is to bless. God's plan is to adopt. God's plan is to redeem. It's to set people free from our pseudo-saviors, from our masters, and to make us his own. So how's God going to do this? I've been trying so hard, as you can tell, not to give the punchline. (laughs) But I love how Sally... Sally Lloyd-Jones puts this in the children's storybook Bible. She says, every story, every text whispers his name. This text just happens to scream it. Christ. Christ is all over this text. 
Verse 3, God's plan to bless. Every last drop of that blessing is Christ. Christ is the totality of the good word that God speaks to us. Christ is the one through whom the blessing comes. He is the blessing. Verse 5, God's plan is to adopt. And this adoption is through Christ. Because he is our older brother. And he came to this world to look for us. And to seek and to save us. And he found us. And he, he showed us the Father. He showed us the way back to the Father. He lost the Father. So we could have the Father. Verse 7, God's plan to redeem. It's through Christ. Most specifically what? His blood. He is the Lamb. And his blood is the ransom price. His blood unchains us. It sets us free. He died the death. We all deserve to die. And so God's entire plan, down to the smallest detail, it's through Christ, it's by Christ, it's for Christ, it's in Christ, it's Christ, Christ, Christ. I don't want to assume too much, but what does the Bible mean by Christ? See, this is where I just want us to just instinctively go back and think, kings, Because so many think of Christ as this abstract, mystical, spiritual deity. But what does Christ simply mean? Messiah. Anointed one. More specific yet, it means king. So every time you and I read the word Christ, we need to be thinking God's king, a flesh and blood king, his perfect king. And here's the deal. As good as his blessing is and his adopting and his redeeming is, these things all only modify the main point. Because what's the magnum opus of God's plan? It's verse 10. That all things in heaven and on earth be brought together under one head, one king, Christ. And this is God's plan for the world. That's why he created it. This is God's plan for you. It's why he made you. It's why he blesses. That's why he adopts. It's why he redeems. It's to bring all things in heaven to heaven and earth together under one head, Christ. Now when it says heaven and earth, remember, heaven in the Bible refers to God's space. Earth in the Bible refers to our space. And what you see throughout the Bible, starting with the fall, is that these two things are separate. Except in one place. Where are heaven and earth brought together? Temples. Temples is where heaven met earth. Where God's space intersects with our space. But now think about it. The whole earth will be a temple. As Isaiah says, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory 
of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Heaven's going to marry earth like a husband marries a bride. They're going to become one. God's space will be brought perfectly together with our space. It's going to be the Garden of Eden all over again. Because what made the Garden, the Garden, what made Eden, the Eden, is God's people in God's space, under God's head, enjoying God. I mean, read the last two chapters of your Bible today. You'll see where the Bible's going. It's a return to Eden. But this time, the garden will be what? What's it going to be? A city. See the New Jerusalem. See, the New Jerusalem is the Garden of Eden. And listen... Don't for a second think that you're escaping this world to go to that world. What's happening in Revelation 21? Are you going up to it? It's coming down. It's coming down to us. See, the new Eden, the new Jerusalem, is depicted here as Christ's new bride, and it's coming down. It's prepared. It says Revelation 21, verse 3. It's as beautifully dressed as bride for her husband. Now listen, if, if that were to happen right now, if that were to 